0: Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Hillary Clinton is one of the frontrunners to become the next president of the United States. Katie McGinney could be elected U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania. That sounds like progress for women looking to run for political office. Really, it wouldn't take much to improve upon the current situation in Pennsylvania, where 18 percent of the legislature is female. So are we seeing a change? And what are the factors that have kept women out of politics or at least running for elected office? First part of our program today, we're going to be discussing this issue with Dr. Sarah Niebler, assistant professor of political science, and Dr. Kathleen Marchetti, assistant professor of political science, both at Dickinson College. Dr. Sneibler-Merchetti, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having us, Scott. Yeah, thank you.
0: If you would like to join in our conversation, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. WITF's Election 26 coverage is supported by the Harrisburg Law Office of Saul Ewing, LLP. All right, I'll start with that uh, basic question. Why aren't there more women who have been elected to office not only here in Pennsylvania, but across the country, percentages a little higher across the country, mm-hmm. but not much bigger.
2: Yeah, um, so Pennsylvania ranks about, so according to the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers, um, which is one of the leading kind of data banks for information about women in politics, Pennsylvania ranks around 40th out of all of the states. The highest we've ever ranked is 38 out of the 50 states. And so, in terms of women's representation in Pennsylvania specifically, um, we, as you know, have never had um, a woman senator, we've never had a woman governor, and there are a number of reasons why, both specifically in Pennsylvania and across the country, we see these gender-based differences in running and Um, actually serving in office. And so research in American politics and in gender and politics has talked about the fact that When women run, they actually win at relatively similar rates to men, and what the problem becomes is that it's a supply problem. And so we see differences in socialization, we see differences in what's called political ambition in terms of women not really seeing themselves as part of the political sphere. right? And so um, that has been kind of a big contributing factor. The other thing that matters is that um, when we see women running for higher office, they often serve in, you know, prior offices, lower offices. And so if we have fewer women in the state legislature, for example, that makes it harder for them to build kind of a resume that would make them um, qualified to run for Congress or for Senate or something like that at the national level.
1: One other piece I would add would be that a lot of times, the reason that folks decide to run for office, whether it's men or women, is that they've been asked and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that women are not being asked as at as higher rates as men are being asked, or even if they are being asked, they're not even necessarily realizing that they're being asked. Mm-hmm. Someone sort of says off the cuff, "Hey, you'd be good at this um, and women don't hear that as you should run. you really should should take this opportunity and and run for office. Um, But men hear this sort of off the cuff comment and say, I would be good at that. I'm going to go ahead and do that.
0: You know, I think one of the key things that uh, you said, Dr. Marchetti, uh, is that the, the statistics show that when women do run, that they are just as successful as men candidates. So it's not like there is a, a voter bias against women candidates. I think we're we're past that for the most part. It's just that women aren't running as often as men. Now, some of the things you mentioned, but I, I wanted to bring up a couple other things. As, as I was looking into this in some of the research, uh, we know that incumbents... Have a real advantage, right. and one of the real advantages they have is in money. How much money they, on radio, Dr. Uh, Need We're just uh, making it, a money that's money right. sign yeah, here. That's right. Yeah, no fundraising is, is a huge challenge. But um, it is. But absolutely. it is incumbents have that real advantage when it comes to raising money. And that seems to be one of the reasons it's not just kept women from running, but probably a lot of good male candidates as well.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, money plays a huge role in American politics, um, particularly in the last six or eight years, um, you know, post-Citizens United, post some of the other uh, campaign contributions, Supreme Court decisions that we've seen. Money matters, and the amount of money that you can raise is a, or that you need to raise in order to mount a successful campaign is a huge hurdle for, as you said, not just female candidates, but male candidates as well.
0: I read an article in one of the business journals that uh, compared women in leadership roles in business to women who are running for office, and found many of the same reasons that there aren't as many women in leadership roles. But I wanted to read a a few things to you and just get your reaction to it. And you touched on this. Women often wait to be asked. Political parties need to actively recruit women Mm -hmm. candidates instead of pulling from their networks, which tend to be Mm male-dominated. Women and girls show a confidence gap when Mm -hmm. leadership opportunities arise. Women need to be encouraged and supported to take on leadership positions. Women may perceive themselves to be less capable. Most women think you need a PhD or law degree to run for office, but that's not the case. I think we can see that uh, in 2016. Exactly. Women may be more risk adverse in electoral politics, and women may not see an entry point in politics or are not sure of which office can lead to the next opportunity, which is where political parties and mentoring can play a critical role in shepherding women's candidacies. What do you think of those?
1: I want to touch on that next to last point you made about... um Risk averse. Risk averse. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of a lot of candidates and nearly every candidate that runs for office loses their first time around. Right? It's it's a learning curve. It takes time. You have to figure out how to fundraise. You have to figure out how to campaign. Lots of candidates lose the first time around. Um, and if a female candidate loses the first time around, she tends to not try a second time. And that tends to not as, not be quite as true for male candidates.
2: Mm-hmm. And I want to circle back actually to um, what you were talking about in terms of whether or not voter bias is over. Because this is actually something that is a deterrent to women in terms of thinking about running. Part of the reason why women are not particularly enthusiastic sometimes about running for office is the potential for very negative blowback in the press. Um, They are concerned about potential voter bias, whether or not that actually plays out in terms of um, their chances for election or their success uh, when running. But what's interesting about voter bias, particularly with respect to the presidential election, um, the presidential primary now versus 2008 with Hillary Clinton, is that uh, Sexism is not explained or expressed in as overt terms as it was, particularly for Clinton's candidacy in 2008 versus now. What do you mean?
0: Give me an example.
2: Oh, gosh. Um, There are just countless examples um, from the 2008 primary season where Clinton was attacked um, by... other candidates, by by people on kind of media, in very gendered terms, and it wasn't addressed in as gender bias, right? Lots of conversations about what she
1: wore, what her hair was like, right? Right, All of those kinds of stereotypical things. But But but, even
2: beyond that, I mean, her personality not conforming to like a warm, approachable, kind of very gendered lens, right? Um, And she really
0: wrestled with that. Absolutely. And I
2: don't see that as much of an issue, or it's not coming up as overtly in this campaign. But what is coming up, and I think is interesting, and I've actually talked about this with students in classes, uh, is the fact that now we're hearing a lot about her trustworthiness, right? Is she trustworthy, and that's actually playing off of a gender stereotype about women being more moral and more honest and so even though so we're seeing gender emerge in potentially kind of negative ways um in different ways in less overt ways in or in more subtle ways
0: so you know there probably are people listening to this to say well I, did, I disagree with that that mm-hmm. they uh think she's less trustworthy because she's more Clinton. <laughs> When I say that, that is not showing my point of view, but that there are people out there that have seen the scandals that uh, both Bill and Hillary Clinton have gone through. And that's one of the reasons that they do not they don't trust her as much as they just don't feel that she's she's honest.
2: We don't hear the same rhetoric about Donald Trump being not trustworthy, though you know, and I'm sure Mm. he has skeletons in his closet. You think? I think some of this
0: is also
1: (laughs) thinking about the track record that the Clintons have in politics, and we could spend an entire hour, I think, probably talking about the insider versus outsider nature of both the presidential races on the Democratic side, the Republican side, and the Senate race in Pennsylvania, or the Senate primary in Pennsylvania. Um, But I think the the insider-outsider piece of this, some of what we're talking about with Clinton and trustworthiness could just be her incredibly long Mm and the very long history that both Clintons right. have in politics have and so they have records, they have, they have records. exactly yeah. and there's yeah. there's evidence to suggest that you know Senate Candidates have a more difficult time getting elected because they have all the votes in the Senate that they have mm-hmm. to explain for and account yeah. for in the course of a presidential campaign. Well, so it's, it's a lot more complicated than just straight up trustworthiness or honesty. Let's so face it, it. this
0: point. year is unlike any other year we've seen. I mean, uh-huh. uh, when you go down the list of the five remaining presidential candidates, uh, I, I, I mean, Bernie Sanders, I saw a, a Clinton supporter yesterday post, so what has Bernie Sanders ever done in the Senate? Before this presidential campaign, people would add, you know, did you ever hear Bernie Sanders do anything? On the Republican side, Trump has a lot, let's face it, he has more negatives than any of the five remaining candidates. People have asked Ted Cruz what he's ever done besides threatening to shut down the government. John Kasich probably has uh, the most extensive record of the, on the Republican, the Republican side, side. Um, because he was a governor and did and was in Congress. Mm-hmm. So you have five candidates. You're right. We could do a whole uh, a, a whole program on that. But something that, Dr. Marchetti, you're you're talking about is that uh, women candidates have been held to a different standard. Talk about that. Are they still?
2: So part of the standard to which women candidates are held is actually in part self-imposed, right? And so when we look at, for example, the records of people who end up running for office, women run later, they run um, after, again, after serving in lower levels of office. And so a lot of that, a lot of the research on gender and politics shows that in order to combat gender stereotypes about women not being qualified for office, for example, they build a resume in ways that are significantly different from their male counterparts. And so, you know, the again, kind of this standard, this higher standard is kind of simultaneously both at the public level in terms of kind of what do we picture when we picture a president, right? Um, Or what do we picture when we think about a senator? And so in order to combat that Um, women, again, kind of build more extensive resumes and self-impose standards that once they run, maybe voters would not really think about in the same way. But
0: you know, and again, when I'm talking about this standard is that uh, men candidates, male candidates over the years, uh, that many voters want them to be tough, they want them to talk tough, Mm -hmm. whether it's about national security issues or here's what we're going to do, here's my plan. Woman does the same thing. There are many voters who say, "Well, I don't like her. She's just not like you said, warm." It like doesn't would...
1: match up with our expectations of right. what men and women do in society at large, right? And but so, anytime it... those those things come into conflict or there's there's tension there, it becomes a mismatch for people and a way a, a kind of cognitive cognitive dissonance for them to try to figure out how this works and and what kinds
0: of leaders that we want. But in then politics. at the same time, a woman can't be. Considered too soft. Absolutely. I mean, I think about Pat Schroeder remember Pat Schroeder. What was I don't know what year that was 92 when she ran and she broke down in tears at an event and you know all the talk for a week was okay is she too weak to be president of the united states hillary clinton
1: in 2008 the same thing right i mean that actually ended up refocusing her campaign a little bit in new hampshire i believe in the primaries um but the same conversation right
2: really see so i remember reaction to that being again playing off of this calculated nature because what's different about clinton is that she's very rarely described in those terms. She's strong on foreign policy. Mm-hmm. She's she's hawkish in terms of military policy. And so she's rarely described as weak or unqualified. Mm-hmm but it creates this very fine line that women have to walk. And so some of the blowback to her tearing up on the eve of the New Hampshire mm-hmm. primary was that this was all a political ploy to right, right. sway people. It was calculated. It was concern. calculated exactly yeah. that she's not, you know, sufficiently human <laughs> or approachable. Yeah.
0: You're listening to smart talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing women in politics more specifically Why More Women Don't Run for Elected Office. Our guest today, Dr. Sarah Niebler, Assistant Professor of Political Science, Dr. Kathleen Marchetti, Assistant Professor of Political Science, both at Dickinson College. We welcome your questions and comments. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Now, we have uh, a listener, Pamela in Harrisburg, says, trustworthiness with Hillary. One wonders if it's because of the major problem of eight years smear campaign. Uh, and we have a similar car on the line, Rick and Lidditz. Rick, you're on the air.
3: Hi, Scott. Hi. Uh, you know, I, I had, when I was listening to that about Clinton's credibility, the first thing that came to mind was if any, just about any per- person on the planet for the last 20 years had has had as many people as Hillary's had looking in their underwear drawer, we'd all go to jail for something. You know? And And the other thing was Back then, she talked about the vast right-wing conspiracy that everybody poo-hooed. But now, that same vast right-wing conspiracy is going after Donald Trump.
0: All right, thank you very much for your call. Does this? Kind of relate to what, just what the last two callers said to what you were talking about. I think
1: so. I mean, I think this is the exact exact conversation we were having about her track record. I mean, there is an, an impressively long track record here of public service for both Bill and H- and Hillary Clinton. And so, there. I think your your caller is correct, right? There's bound to be um, something that that people are going to find fault with, something that people are going to be skeptical of. Uh,
0: I mentioned the introduction, and we talked with her yesterday, uh, Katie McGinney, Democrat running for the U.S. Senate. Uh, How will gender play a role? In this Senate race,
1: I think this is a, a classic insider versus outsider campaign. Um, you know, Sestak, who I know is I think your guest later today, we'll, yeah, solidly independent, which has frustrated many of the Democratic insiders. You know, he frustrated them in 2010 by running against Specter. Um, McGinty has reeled in pretty much every endorsement in the state um, and beyond, from Democratic leaders to you know Governor Wolf, uh, former Governor Rendell, Senator Casey, President Obama, Obama, Vice President Biden, and nearly 20 labor groups. Um, and so I think there's this thinking about what, what Kathleen was saying earlier about the track record. Um, this is actually working slightly opposite in the Senate race than I think we would expect. Right, McGinty doesn't have as thick a resume, doesn't have as much of a history in the public eye yet has has secured all of these endorsements. Um, and I think the the big thing to to watch um, come primary time on Tuesday is whether this insider, this kind of outsider mentality that's that's existing. Um, across the country and across the state this year trickles down and applies to the Senate race as well. So that doesn't quite get to your gender question, but I think it's this insider-outsider and, again, this opposite of what we would expect where the female candidate has less public eye, um, less time in the public eye, but um, has secured all these major endorsements.
0: How do you define outsider? How do the two of you define outsider? Because let's face it, probably since 1800, uh, there have been candidates running against Washington. But we hear so much of that as an explanation why Donald Trump and even Ted Cruz are, uh, you know, leaders in uh, the Republican Party and that Bernie Sanders and the Democratic side, that the, the, the... You know, those candidates are considered outsiders. What do you consider outsider?
1: Some of it for me gets defined based on who is – what's the field. And so within the field, who's the more insider, who's the more outsider? I think that's – particularly what's happened in the Democratic presidential primary. I mean, Sanders has served in Senate for 30 years. So he's insider by most definitions of that term. Um, If we think about previous electoral experience, that's one of the measures that we often use. Sanders would be an insider. But when you compare him to Clinton, particularly when you compare him to the Clintons, um, he becomes the outsider candidate. So I think some of it is just in definition to the field. Um, But I think most of it has to do with uh, how... You know previous electoral experience, particularly at the federal level,
0: and we had um, a listener, and I, I, I'm I'm glad she brought this up because this was a classic case this year. She mentioned Carly uh, Carly Fiorina, and you know Donald Trump famously talked about her looks and was not very complimentary to her. I mean that was like uh, one of the classic moments where a male candidate criticized a female candidate based. Uh, Just on looks, nothing else. I mean, I'm surprised that didn't get more of a conversation going.
2: And I think that is reflective of the fact that, and this is reflective of the trends that were happening in 2008, that we don't talk publicly about sexism in the same way that we do other types of bias or recognize it. And this was certainly, that comment was certainly recognized in the press, but it was kind of like not attached to patterns of comments about women who are running for office and their, you know, what they're wearing um, and, and what their hair looks like. And are they shoo- showing too much cleavage on the, <laughs> on the floor? But I think uh, yeah. and it's, it's, you know, so that, I think that's what, it, it, they're sporadic, it, they're described as sporadic, but they're really more systematic than that. Those types of
1: comments. What were
0: your, uh, but, okay. as, go ahead. I think we... we
1: are seeing some conversation now yes. as the general election becomes a little bit more clear who the nominees are going to be. Um, I think we're seeing more conversation about um, whether those Trump, those comments that Trump made about Fiorino or Megyn Kelly or any of the other comments that he might have made, have an effect. Um, not just on the who wins the nomination, but on what female voters mm-hmm. decide to do mm-hmm. in November. right? Well, if he's the nominee, if Clinton's mm-hmm. the nominee, this sets up um, a, a conversation uh, to have that sort of similar to what Kathleen's saying, a much more explicit conversation about gender and the role that it plays in American politics. Yeah, That's exactly right.
0: You know, we've heard in the last few weeks that uh, Trump will become more presidential once he is the nominee and that he will tone it down. That I I don't know. I'll be a little bit surprised because I think it's going to be an ugly campaign if they are the two uh, nominees. Mm -hmm. Will Trump go as far as, or maybe I should ask it this way, will it have an impact on voters if Trump criticizes uh, Hillary Clinton? Uh, in sexist ways, talks about her looks, talks about uh, the, some of the things that in in her record. What do you think?
2: I think it will be problematic, and even we saw, and this was kind of all over the news this morning, a different Trump last night, Correct. right? In his yeah. more um, victory speech, yes. So, and that was exactly what people were commenting on. Suddenly, the presidential Trump is coming out, right? He's referring to. Um, Ted Cruz's Senator Cruz all of a sudden. Yeah, right? I noticed that too and, in and the sound so, part, yeah. And so, you know, the campaign is picking up on the fact that, sure, the off-the-cuff kind of um, outlandish statements play well to some audiences, but that particularly given data about women's voting turnout, which is, is high, um, I think they're getting the message that you, he has to tone this down, and I think it would be very problematic if he went after Clinton in those terms because he now has a record of doing this publicly with other people. The
1: general election electorate is very, very different than primary election electorates. And so there are a whole different pool of voters who... Don't pay attention to politics until Labor Day, mm. right? And so I think that's something to think about as well.
0: well. Well, you know what is different about this year is Labor Day last year that uh, the media was paying attention. <laughs> fair to. Enough, I fair mean, enough. This campaign, but still most seems, folks are know, not as pay, know, not as know, into politics as
1: as us. But we it just are, seems as though, as, as
0: though this uh, as this campaign has just gone on for a long, long time. Do you think that uh, with the, the polls have shown that uh, Donald Trump is not popular with uh, with women voters Now that's not a one hundred percent statement, but the, the polls have shown that uh, women do are a little bit uh, weary of him. Um, does that mean that there would be a higher turnout amongst women voters?
1: There has been a higher turnout among women voters for longer than folks realize. I mean, women have turned out at higher rates than men for the last 20 or 30 years worth of elections. Um, But I think some of it will be this question of, is there additional turnout because women are turning out to vote against someone they perceive to be uh, more misogynistic? Mm.
2: And it's important to recognize the diversity within this category women, right? We see different voting behavior from single women than we do from married women. Mm -hmm. We see- Well, for example, give me mm
0: -hmm. me some examples there.
2: So um, single women tend to vote more liberally than married women. Mm-hmm. Um, issues like reproductive rights, for, for example, are more salient for that population, kind of explanatory in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and that's not even factoring in things like Racial diversity that um, changes that as well because we see very different patterns for black women's voting behavior than white women's. And so, and even age, right? I mean, age age comes along with marital status, and
1: there's certainly a relationship, but even in the primary, you know, women have turned out and voted for Clinton at higher rates compared to Sanders. But when you look at 18 to 24-year-old right, women, 18 that. to 29-year-old women, they're still mm-hmm. much more supportive of Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. So age there sort of seems to trump gender, at
0: least until you reach um, a, a, a little bit higher age.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. I, let's
0: talk about that because, you know, one of... The phenomena, if you will, uh, during the Democratic uh, uh, campaigns has been that uh, Bernie Sanders has done so well amongst young people, not not just young women, but young men as well. And I know that uh, one of the things that many people have asked is, why doesn't Hillary do better amongst young women? You would think that she would be a role model for many young women who would see that that glass ceiling is about to be broken, but she doesn't do that well with young women. Why?
2: So there was actually a monkey cage piece about this. Sarah, did you see that? Mm -hmm. Um, Was that last week? And I so. and so it, they looked at this more directly. And it is coming down, the explanation is that it's coming down to life experience. And so this generation of younger women have not grown up in a world in which they could be formally barred from attending college. Um, even sports. Where, I mean, there was a or conversation sports, about sports yeah. um, or, um, and purchase, where, women's
1: participation in youth sports yeah, as being part of big, this. Yeah, a, really? plays a big mm-hmm. difference,
2: yeah, in terms of building confidence and running for office and gaining access to higher ed. And so they've not experienced a world that some older women have, and so therefore don't identify with a woman ascending to this position in the same way.
0: Mm -hmm. And by the way, we're going to be talking with uh, Jeff Sestak, uh, one of the Democratic candidates for the U.S. Senate, in just a a few minutes. I actually have him on hold right now. So we'll be talking with uh, Congressman Sestak in uh, just a few minutes. Uh, One of the big – and this isn't necessarily tied to gender – uh, GOP delegate allocation, uh, specifically the fact that voters will have to select delegates whom they likely know nothing about.
1: Correct. Yeah, Pennsylvania has very, very unique rules um, for, on in terms of Republican de- delegate allocation rules. So next week, well, so there's a total of 71 Republican delegates. Um, 17 of those go to the statewide winner next Tuesday. The other 54 are apportioned out in each of the 18 congressional districts in Pennsylvania. But the trick is, and this is the really unique part, They run the delegates run on the ballot in Pennsylvania under their own names. So you would vote for a delegate. You don't vote for you still vote for Trump or Cruz or Kasich. um, But then separately, you vote for delegates that represent your congressional district. Um, And unlike any other state, uh, to my knowledge, The delegates don't have any information on the ballot about who they have have pledged to support. So, because they're elected under their own names, because they appear on the ballots themselves, they go into the convention in Cleveland as unbound delegates. So, there are all the candidates are talking about making plays for those delegates, um, but they go in unbound. People next week on the Republican uh, who participate in the Republican primary are going to need to elect them. By their own names, so they're going to need to do some research, figure out who they want to to elect to those those spaces. So it just
0: brings more uh, attention to uh, what's going on at the convention. Uh, one final question: I want to thank both of you for being here today. Uh, Hillary Clinton running for president, and this is the second time around. Uh, we had a Republican running for president, uh, Carly Fiorina. Uh, will that translate to more women running? I'm not just talking for president, but for the statewide level.
1: I hope uh, so. I hope so. I think a lot of it depends on what the rhetoric of this campaign looks Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. and the degree to which it, um, you know, younger women watching this campaign feel um, that there's not this overt sexism anymore. It's not, um, Kathleen was talking about, it's not just um, the fact that. We don't explicitly talk about sexism, but there's also the perception of whether we mm. talk about sexism mm-hmm. and whether campaigns are sexist. So it's not necessarily whether they are objectively, but whether we perceive them as such.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And I want to thank both of you for being with us. Dr. Sarah Niebler, Assistant Professor of Political Science. Dr. Kathleen Marchetti, Assistant Professor of Political Science, both at Dickinson College. Thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you.
0: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. This week, the Democrats running for the U.S. Senate from Pennsylvania are appearing on Smart Talk to talk about the issues, with each getting to state their case to voters. Today, we're joined by former U.S. Navy Admiral and Congressman Joe Sestak. Congressman Sestak, welcome to the program.
3: Scott, it's great to be with you. And that was a great conversation, Noise and I don't know if you know, I was teaching at Dickinson College. Instead of lobbying, I went to teach at Dickinson and other colleges. So great discussion.
0: Well, yeah, they actually uh, they mentioned that uh, to me before uh, before the program. So oh. <laughs> yeah, it's good to see that uh, you had some, some Dickinson ties there. I have a few questions, Congressman, that I ask of all the Yo, candidates. Please. Okay. Why are you running for the U.S. Senate?
3: I'm running because I want to actually help restore the trust that's been lost in public officials, integrity of service. Look, I don't want to just win. I want to govern. And like I in Navy, when I was captain of a ship, you couldn't lead men and women to harm's way unless you had their trust. More than anything else, that's what I want to do. And then once you have that trust, by making sure people know like you're in it for them which is why I turned down those lobbying jobs not to enrich myself from my public service after I left congress then I want to restore that dream that american dream in three key areas one jobs that actually arise with raising wages that's by making small businesses actually be created twice as much as today because that's what they were during the Ronald Reagan era we actually had twice as many small businesses being created that we do today, and they create 70 percent of all jobs. Second, education. It's our homeland defense. In the Navy, you are trained and educated for a lifetime, or you don't even get promoted. It's our human capital to take those jobs. And finally, an infrastructure that's not anchored to the past, but actually is a bridge to the future, and that includes a wireless infrastructure in all the rural counties. I want to restore that dream. And how can you do it without trust? Finally, my national security experience. There are so few, if any, on the Democratic and Republican side in the Senate, nor anyone running across this nation, that actually truly understands, like I have learned in 31 years in the military, serving as President Clinton's direct defense policy, the militaries can stop a war, Scott. They just, and they can stop a problem. They just can't fix a problem like we have in fixed Iraq. So before you use the military, make sure you know how to secure the peace the day after. And that's why I'm worried about Syria and other places.
0: And we're gonna talk about all those things uh, during uh, our time on the air, but something you touched on very early on when you say restore that trust. The country is divided and nowhere else is this polarization more evident than in Washington. Yep. Uh, many people in this state and across the country Uh, believe that Washington doesn't work anymore, and it appears that compromise is a bad word. Now, how do you let voters know that you won't just be another partisan senator once you get to
3: Washington? I represented a Republican district, the second congressman since the Civil War. My second election, I won by 20 points. I raised $3 million. I used none of it. I just put up yard signs and won because we kept the office open seven days a week. Until 9 o'clock every night, Saturdays and Sundays, during the recession, 18,000 people walked in my door for help, homes, foreclosures. We saved two-thirds of them, 18,000 people. And so the Republicans said, hey. I want, I believe he's a person, he's a public servant. Second, I'll do what I did in Congress, called the most productive congressman of my class. 18 pieces of bipartisan legislation, more than any senator or congressman in Pennsylvania, more than any of my class. The first movement of money into autism, that I did bipartisan, because we found programs to cancel and actually put $29 million in, because one out of every 45 children born in Pennsylvania this year will have autism, and we need to research it. The first movement, the first elder abuse act in 17 years, because I had to sue Wachovia Bank, because they, they were letting telemarketers rip off my seniors. In short, I did the walk across Pennsylvania. To let people know it isn't about party, it isn't about type, it's about people. And that's probably why today, my own Democratic leadership, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, has led an effort of $4.2 million to put in against me and sought seven people to run against me before they got a seventh one to do it. It is about people. That's how I did it as a congressman, and that's how I intend to do it as a senator. And I'll hold open town halls unlike... Any statewide official today does. None of them do it any longer.
0: You, you just mentioned, you touched on this, that you have history with the party. They didn't want you to run against Senator Arlen Specter when he switched parties in 2010. Uh, they haven't given you much support, and you just, when you're talking about $4 million, that's no support at all. Why? Why, why don't they, I don't want to put it this way, but why don't they like Joe Sestak?
3: Well, they asked me to run against Senator Specter.
0: But then Spector changed parties.
3: And they told me to sit down. I took a 67-county tour over three weeks, went to every county to talk to people. And then I said, no, I'm going to fight for people. And I meant that because, and I didn't sit down. And we won against the Democratic establishment. And then we narrowly lost. Then I went down a year and a half ago. And I said, I'd like to see if we could work together. I meant. And I talked with Senator Reid. Oh, there's three senators. I remember one senator said to me, Joe, we've got, you have a reputation for independence. We've got to work on that. Another senator said, hey, Joe, I'm going to put a guy in your staff. And when I call him and I tell him what to tell you, and he comes in to see you, your only answer will be yes. <laughs> they began when I said, Senator, if there's a disagreement, I'll pick up the phone and call you. We'll work it out. That's when they called the first of seven. I tried it again. And the same senator said to me, Sestak, whenever I tell you anything, the only answer will be yes. Here's the issue. There are leaders and there are power holders. And people are being attracted to Trump, who I think is actually the could You could not get someone who has, I believe, policies that could be more divisive. But why are they attracted to him? Because he's railing, they they see, against the system, an establishment that's not working for them. I don't mind they're putting $4.2 million in against me. We're still watching off. We still look like we're going to win. And the reason is, is because everybody has eventually gone down to Washington and got it into transactional leadership. I'll trade you this if you trade me this, and I'll move up the ranks this way. They've forgotten what we know in the Navy. You're responsible to your sailors when you take them into harm's way, not to the admiral above you. You have to be a transformational leader and be willing to stand up for people and not worrying about a lobbying job later on.
0: But isn't that part of compromise, though, Uh, when you're talking about those
3: trade-offs? Absolutely. It doesn't mean you can't do transactional uh, uh, transactions, for example. I call it a principled compromise without compromising your principles. But how you do it is important. Let me give you an example. I took a Republican that did not want to work initially on a bill that would forgive $10,000 in loans for anybody who went into occupational, physical therapy, audiology, or speech therapy. Why did I want to do this? Well. I took him to Walter Reed Hospital, and I said, let me show you our vets coming home. Traumatic brain injury, it's not like the days of old, the Vietnam where a bullet hit your helmet and your right frontal lobe kind of had a traumatic brain injury because of a hard hit. These IEDs, when they explode in Afghanistan, and they go, the explosion comes up underneath inside the helmet. And the helmets are so good today, the blast doesn't leave. It just goes 360 degrees around and around. The traumatic brain injury is 360 degrees. To take care of them, we have a deficit in speech pathologists, uh, audiologists, speech pathologists, we, audio occupation therapists, and others. You are used to be an occupational therapist. How about if we work together and then be able to show the deficit and forgive $10,000 in loan? He did. We passed the bill. Mm-hmm. And those are the ways you do principal compromise, not like McConical and are down there, yelling at each other. Look, I did do... And worked with others, and you find a way to do it. work we could do it with Republicans on health care. They want to bring down barriers on the states about what insurance companies California sell here. I'm all in agreement with that. But somehow we have forgotten down there. It's about I win, you lose, rather than principle compromise. But at the same time, it means you stand up for people. So when that senator says it's Sestac, whenever I tell you anything, the only answer be yes my gosh, what are we talking about? Mm-hmm. There's no more kings and kingmakers in our society. And that is really, people know that's the way the system is.
0: Well, let me, uh, you do have two other candidates, or excuse me, opponents in uh, the, the primary, possibly a third. Uh, why are you better equipped to handle the challenges facing the country than your opponents?
3: I got into this because, one, my record of integrity of service is one that has a track record, whether it was in the military where I joined up during the Vietnam era, or whether it was getting out of the Navy to take care of my daughter who had brain cancer at four years old when I came back from 12 months of the war. And then I was an independent after this country gave me a health care plan in the military that saved her. I became a Democrat to work in health care for everyone. But then when I lost, I after keeping the office open, to 9 o'clock every night. I didn't become a lobbyist. I mean, I became, I went to teach, like at Dickinson and other places, be with our National Treasure the Youth. It is a record of integrity of service. Second, I'm extremely concerned in an increasingly dangerous world where... China yesterday landed for the first time, for example, military aircraft on one of the four artificial aircraft carriers, reefs that they have built in South China Sea and dominated and say, we own all the resources under here. And a week ago, we had our Secretary of Defense there on two aircraft carriers saying, you can't do that. People today don't understand how the proper use of our military is to be, and they get us into tragedies like Iraq, Democrats and Republicans, and then no one's held responsible. And finally, I have a passion for restoring the American dream. I wrote a book about it. It's why I went to teach to learn about why is the biggest number of discrimination cases brought to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, not race, but the biggest percentage is pregnancy discrimination, and how can we move forward, and how about a principal compromise on the minimum wage where studies and statistics show if you raise it, not just jump it to some arbitrary number, but raise it to the average, to half the average hourly wage, The proofs have shown that you don't lose jobs. Beyond that, you do. A practical approach. Yes, it's a principal compromise. I have a passion that I owe this country for my daughter, and I want to bring more than anything else an integrity of service for others, not myself. I think that's what people want today.
0: All right, we're going to talk more about issues in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Congressman Joe Sestak is our guest this portion of the program. He's one of the Democrats running for the U.S. Senate from Pennsylvania. The winner will face incumbent Republican Senator Pat Toomey this November. Senator, or excuse me, Congressman. I wanted to just Yo, get please. back. <laughs> I just wanted to get back to what we—the question I had asked before about why you're a better candidate. I'm sure Katie McGinty and uh, John Fetterman say they're very passionate as well. So give me one example of where you, there's a big difference between you and your the other two opponents?
3: Well, one obviously is the national security expertise that I can bring. Um, it's absent down there in the United States Senate, just absent. On the Democratic side and on the Republican side, you have 47 senators who signed a letter to the Ayatollah of Iran and said, how about a bipartisan pack against our president on this Iranian accord? And so it's absent. And number two, I believe certain things you have to stand for. Let's take a moratorium on fracking. I was for it in 2010, and I stand for it today. Why? Well, you probably saw the report that came out this past week from John Hopkins Public Health Institute that did a study of women who live near wells that are being fracked in Pennsylvania. They went through the counties and it and showing the premature births that are occurring. And so in the Navy, you learn piss-poor planning gives you piss-poor results, and you can only expect what you inspect, and the EPA is forbidden by law by coming in and inspecting the drinking water under the Safe Drinking Water Act. The loophole called the Halliburton loophole was passed in 2005. And so that's why early on, 2910 as well as today, I stand for that. I think there's a practical solution to it. But get it right before you do it. Even the Auditor General said that when the Department of Environmental Protection in Pennsylvania began fracking, and in a study done last year said they weren't prepared, and they just didn't have the right regulations. We don't want another flint because lead is used in that fracking material, and and yet they don't have to reveal how much and all that. So there's a position where I say and have said for years, this is the right way to do things. Mm. Also, small business. My gosh, I was vice... I mean, it isn't just about jobs, but have you laid out a way to create jobs? For, for example, the studies have shown that I've, I've gone through and said we can create uh, more jobs, but small businesses or have regulations that cost 40% more. And then I lay out a way to remove them under what's called, used one time. Uh, the Negotiated Rulemaking Act, passed in 1999, with small businesses and sit at the table and make sure that regulation, which doesn't apply for them, isn't put into the draft regulation, and then give them access to capital. Wisconsin gave a tax credit for anyone who invested in a new small business, and they quadruple the investors. So it's not just saying that you're for small businesses, but have you laid out a way to actually make them create, you know, 70% of all jobs twice as often as they did? Because here, we only create... 18 small businesses for every 10,000 working Americans. Back in 1977, and all, it was 36. We got to get them back on the football field for both half of the games.
0: Mm. Uh, Congressman Suspect, we had uh, Katie McGinney, your opponent, on yesterday. And when I asked her the same question, the differences between uh, the two of you, uh, the first thing she brought up was Social Security. And I saw a television commercial last night that uh, it wasn't from her campaign, but it was criticizing your stand on Social Security saying that it would endanger Social Security or not um, have the, the same kind of benefits that we have in Social Security and Medicare today. How do you
3: respond to that? Somebody shouldn't bear falsehoods. Um, as you probably know, when she said that in a debate the next night, ABC News in Pittsburgh said it was misleading and the Post-Gazette said it was false. That I, And then they pointed out that Joe Sestak voted actually 40 times to protect and advance social security. And then in the ad that she asked, she signaled on her website for a woman's vote to put up an ad about it. The vote that they reference in it is a vote by a Republican congressman done in 2012, two years after I left Congress. That's why FactFact found it that what Katie McGuinney said was false. Now, she has $4.2 million being put in by special interest groups and the DSCC. So she's got a lot of money to run around and do that. And, you know, that's what politicians do. So I don't blame her. But I do think that, you know, there is a difference. So when Katie McGinney, who approved fracking to begin with here, then and called it fracking the secret sauce, the only thing secret about it was the lead and other materials that we weren't allowed to know. And then she went and actually worked, as you know, for the natural gas companies that she was supposed to be regulating as DEP. Now, that's okay, because legally you can do that. But I think that's why trust... Integrity of service has been lost. To actually have 433 congressmen and senators become lobbyists, to have a revolving door in Harrisburg like Katie McGinney did, and then to put up false assertions when in fact, um, you know, I actually did vote 40, 41 times for it and actually have been in radio shows and television shows that actually have said never raise the age of our seniors for retirements because people tend to forget as I was speaking to a construction worker yesterday that yeah people may be living longer but those are tough jobs out there when you're a construction worker and you think you're going to delay it and raise the ages and I have fought hard to protect the benefits and voted for it. So that's why her assertions were found by ABC News to be false and misleading.
0: Let me, uh, we have about four minutes left. And I do want to touch on a couple more topics. When I looked at your website, uh, the number one issue I saw said or saw, I should say, and uh, maybe uh, it's just there because that was the order you put them in, but no, I got the sense that it was one of your priorities was climate change. You mentioned that as the top issue on your website, as if it wasn't being dealt with in Washington.
3: Well, it's not, um, and it wasn't the top issue. But I do call it the number one strategical issue for our planet, and here's why: a number of reasons. But the Pentagon came out in its defense report last year and said one of the greatest source of crises and conflicts in the decades to come our military will have to respond to will be a result of climate change because they have scientists too in the military. And the United States Navy has asked to position a, its underwater spy planes back into Iceland, where they used to be in the Soviet Union days, hunting for submarines of the Soviet Union. Because the Arctic ice is melting, they said, and there's going to be a mad dash and conflict for who owns the resources on the seabed under the Arctic ice. And the United States Navy is now also putting a couple hundred millions of dollars into raising the piers in Norfolk because the seas are rising from climate change. It's a national security issue. You know, it has to do with the life of a planet, but it also has to do with just our basic national security because of the droughts and uh, other issues that are happening. Even, Even our cows produce less milk because of warmer weather, and our apples need colder weather in the winter times in order to rejuvenate themselves, apple trees. So it takes leadership to do it. Take the Department of the Navy. It actually has mandated that by 2023 20, years from now, 50 percent of all the energy it used has to come from alternative energy, renewables and others. Actually, the, we need, you know, even those who are, you know you would call in Sierra Club have only called by 30 percent, 50 percent by 2030. We understand that it's also about jobs, because if you put a million dollars into natural gas, you create one job. You put a million dollars into a wind turbine. Where there's 400 tons of steel, and yet America only doesn't produce very many. But that's 4.5 jobs and permanent jobs, because in fracking you you frack and you move on. You, uh, but in manufacturing, another 400 ton wind turbine is done. You put a million dollars into solar power. Well, that's 5.5 jobs because of the nano the fabrication that has to be done. So in fact, this is a win-win to move us towards it, and also because it truly does have to do with the health and the life of our planet.
0: Congressman, let me interrupt you for just a moment, because we only have one minute left, and I want to give you the opportunity, like I do all the other candidates, to leave a message with voters in 60 seconds or less.
3: I would like to serve again. I did it in the Navy. I did it as a congressman. But I did it to where I understood that you can't do better for yourself than by serving others above yourself but more than anything else. I want to bring an in integrity of service where you're in it for others like you are when you're out there in combat, as I was on the ground in Afghanistan, head of the Davies anti terrorism Unit for a short mission. You were there for others. I don't think people should enrich themselves from public service. I don't want to just govern, Scott. I want Excuse me, I don't want to just win, Scott. I want to govern. And how can you govern if you don't have the trust of people? And then I want to explain things in a practical way like this, that we can restore the American dream where your children have an opportunity better for you, and then to safeguard our nation, but to understand that our military can stop a problem. But when you use it, it won't fix it. And you better be ready to know how to fix a problem afterwards.
0: Congressman Joe Sestak, thank you very much for being with us today.
3: Scott. Thanks for having me.
0: And we encourage everyone to vote next Tuesday. Coming up on tomorrow's program, I Go Home, a WITF original documentary examines the struggles and triumphs for people with intellectual disabilities.